Folks came from all around, from near and from far. sure if my faith is riddled with doubt or whether graciously my doubt is riddled with faith. Hey, I'm glad to see you all come out here tonight. Uh, it's a beautiful fall evening and uh, yeah, just uh, welcome to the House of Mercy and uh, everybody watching at home on your TVs and also on the podcast. Uh, just really glad to have you all here. And uh, let's say hello here. They're, uh, they're singing for the saints and they're dancing for the damn. It's the great old Grievous Angel Band. Let's give them. We're singing for the saints. We are dancing for the damn. We are the grand old Grievous Sounds so good, and I understand you're going to be a guest artist tonight as well. That's right. All right. All right. And you got the full Jonas tonight. Yep. Yeah, excellent. So good. Yeah. All right. All right. Hey, we're having a book study I want to let you all know about. It's Thursdays nights at 7 p.m., either in person here at the church, or you can Zoom in the meeting. You can get that Zoom link by going to the website, I think, or getting the newsletter. It's on... The book, the, Mar the Meaning of Mary Magdalene by Cynthia Bourgeau. It is amazing. Even if you didn't make it last week, come this week. I think we're in four chapters in. Phyllis Salon is leading it, and it is awesome. Yeah, excellent. I hear really fantastic things about it. Oh, tonight, uh, right after the service, well, at 6 o'clock, um, we have an opportunity uh, working with some neighborhood organizations and working with uh, Bethlehem Lutheran Church, that it's going to be uh, training on, um, what is it called, the harm reduction training, encountering people who are uh, in, in distress or opioid overdose, how to use, uh, thank you. And then, so there's dinner, and then also the, you get the naproxen to take home, or whatever it's called. So if you do encounter anybody, it's uh, it's something that we can do to, uh, you know, keep our neighbors safe and be aware of, uh, yeah, what's going on. So you don't have to have signed up beforehand. It's at 6 o'clock, right downstairs tonight. And so did you say there was dinner, too? There yeah. is dinner, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now I think we have a guest announcer, if that's all you had. Well, I wanted to mention something about the uh, Sunday of the Dead, which is the Sunday before... Halloween coming up real soon, and uh, in the past year, uh, several members of our community have lost people, and uh, just in the whole time of COVID, we all know have lost people and known people lost uh, people. So it's going to be a service of of healing and a service of remembrance. It's going to be fantastic. 
feel free to bring other people who you think it might be meaningful for. So that's the 30th. Yep. And on that same night, after that, we have a guest announcer to tell us what's going down. Oh, I thought I was going to be like starting, then you're going to like run down and be, but I guess we didn't work it all out. That's pretty good. Yeah. All right. Here she is, uh, Amber. Amber. Thank you. All right. So, a uh, quick announcement for tonight um, Faith Foundations Formations class, which is the fourth through sixth graders, are in service unless they want to join the younger uh, kids downstairs. Um, but in two weeks, we have Hatchback Halloween. So you guys all remember Trunk or Treat. This is Trunk or Treat 2.0. Um, so you can come with your hatchback. And I've been told if you have a trunk, you can still participate um, and decorate it and then have candy or other treats or things that uh, kids and maybe even adults might like. Um, we'll also have a bonfire and some other food after church. Um, kids can come dressed in costume. So um, plan on spending um, a little more time after church in two weeks. So it's October 30th um, to enjoy Hatchback Halloween. You know, I hear a lot of people mention that there's a prize. Oh, yeah, there is. There's going to be voting. Yeah. So you guys will all get to vote for your favorite hatchback or trunk. Um, and uh, there will be a prize for the best hatchback or trunk. Okay, so no pressure, but, you know, you can, you can uh, plan on that. You can just come with a decorated hatchback or trunk. So if you've got a bike and you just have like a basket on the back or front, you could bring that. Uh, like there's... Ooh, that's next year. 3.0. Yeah. I think it's like shark... All sharks are fish, but not all fish are sharks. So all hatchbacks are still trunks, but I don't know. Anyways, this is the House of Mercy, and welcome to it.
Please join me in the prayer of invocation. God of mercy, we live in a land that goads us forward with fear and scarcity, a scarcity of safety, of financial security, of opportunity, of hope, of love. Bring us all here tonight to a point of exhale, release, and a realization of the abundance of your presence, a real and utterly remarkable, overwhelming presence that contains us and all that we need to truly and simply be. Amen. May the peace of God be with you all. Let's exchange a sign of peace with one another. Meet me in the midway to lay our burdens down. Every single Sunday, let's listen to the sound of them grievous angels, that grand old gospel band. Tune in while they tangle 
with hell's demonic plan. Sinning is so easy, it's painful to repent. Makes me feel too queasy to give it up for Lent. But I miss the mercy, I crave amazing grace. And I'm always thirsty for the waters of faith. Meet me in the midway to lay our burdens down. Every single Sunday, let's listen to the sound of them grievous angels, that grand old gospel band. Tune in while they tangle with hell's demonic plan. Glory, hallelujah, is what I hope to sing. When I've worked it through, yeah, in fear and trembling. For if I'm forgiven, if I have been redeemed, how can I keep living like my spirit To lay our burdens down Every single Sunday Let's listen to the sound Of them grievous angels That grand old gospel band Tune in while they tangle With hell's demonic plan First time that I heard the good news that I was saved I did not feel worthy to be spared from the grave But if Jesus loves me, if his blood makes me pure Can't I rise above the pain and accept the cure? midway to lay our burdens down every single Sunday let's listen to the sound of them grievous angels that grand old gospel band tune in while they tangle with hell's demonic won't you please join me in the prayers of community i'll end each prayer with god in your mercy and i invite you to respond hear our prayer god of mercy grant justice to the widow to the underemployed and underpaid Grant justice to the uninsured, unseen, and overlooked. When the hungry cry out, hear them. When the victims of misogyny, racism, all kinds of hatred and callous power return again and again, pleading in prayer in the streets for justice, hear them.
Grant mercy to the perpetrators of injustice, inequality, and abuse, that their hearts and minds are transformed and their actions reformed, even if they are us. To all who call for justice, hear them. Grant us the grace to hear them also, and on hearing, to act. God, in your mercy. God of mercy, we give you great thanks for this community. May House of Mercy continue to be a place of refuge from the dominant narrative of idolatry, fear, power pimping, and divisiveness. May House of Mercy continue to be a place of study and inspiration, that we might bring the mercy with us out in the world and walk it around all week. We thank you for the people who help make this truly a community of mercy and radical hope. God in your mercy. We confess that we cannot free ourselves, that we are lost and cannot find our way alone. We have hurt people in our lives by our actions and our failure to act. We have not loved you with all that we are, but we are confident that you judge us with your grace. God in your mercy. God of mercy, we pray for the sick, the dying, those who mourn the death of someone they've loved, those of us dealing with mental illness, the incarcerated, and those prisoners to addiction. We ask for freedom, release, healing, and peace. God, in your mercy. God of mercy, meet us now in this extended silence. May we always walk in the mercy. Amen. On a hill far away Stood an old rugged cross The emblem of suffering and shame And I love where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will live. Oh.
someday to my home far away where his glory forever I'll share Scripture reading for tonight is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The word of God. Don't lose heart. Don't let your spirit get dull. Don't let your passion or your compassion or your soul wither and fade? What's most alive in you? What do you call it? Don't lose your love. What makes you really alive instead of half dead or three-fourths dead dragging around looking at your phone instead of people in real life on the bus or in your living room regarding neither God or other humans? Don't lose that aliveness. Or maybe you haven't even found it yet. Or maybe it's just lately that you've lost it again. Whatever, I don't think this passage is just don't be discouraged. Remember to say grace before you eat. Jesus doesn't want people to lose their heart. It's a matter of life and death. Not just breath or no breath, but how deep the breath how lively the synapse is firing, how much do you see and feel and smell and hear life in this moment and the next? Are you fully alive? Or are you more closed up, moving from one thing to the other, unconsciously lacking the imagination for goodness, fullness, transformation, completion? Faith requires the imagination for the goodness of someone, the imagination for abundance, the goodness of a God whose love and mercy is infinite. 
When the Son of Man comes, Jesus asks, will he find faith on earth? That's not like, will he find a lot of people who say they're Christians? It's like, will he find some imagination for the extravagant, incalculable goodness of God? I don't know. Will he? I mean, it might help if the ice sheets quit melting. If we saw a little waning in the rise of racism and homophobia and misogyny. Jesus seems to think that prayer might help us to have heart, imagination, help us grow our imagination for the goodness. When I've preached on this text before several times, I've been smitten with that fierce, undaunted, that ferocious woman who doesn't back down in the face of the judge, who seems to be a little bit of an a-hole to me. And I am still smitten with her. But Russell and I have been talking for a while now about making plans for a spiritual practice lectionary. Because it feels like in these days, in this time, in the life of this world, this planet, we need a practice. We need some practices that can help us keep our imagination for the good functioning. So we thought we could do a spiritual practice lectionary, making that our frame of reference. So as we choose or as we approach a text, we preach on, we kind of focus on that. We haven't really officially begun that. But since it was my on my mind and I read this text this time, it felt like this flashing neon light. Always pray so you don't lose heart. That sounds like a practice. Prayers always seemed kind of like a mystery to me. I mean, it all sort of seems like a mystery to me. But presumably God knows what we need. God loves justice, loves us, means to transform the world. And if God is good and loving and merciful, God certainly doesn't impose some sort of regulation like, now children, first you have to ask politely before I would consider bestowing my goodness or healing onto you. Right? I mean, clearly I think prayer is about changing us, not God. But even though you get the sense here and other places in the text that prayer is crucial to the life of faith, pray always, pray without ceasing, the Bible doesn't actually spend a lot of time laying out what that looks like exactly super clearly, as is its want about most things. I mean, there's the Lord's Prayer, of course, Pray like this, Jesus says, but I mean, you have to admit there's room for inter interpretation there, as there always is. The Bible just really isn't an instructional manual with clear direction and labeled illustrations about what to screw in where and what order. It's narratives and poetry and stories, reading that we get involved in something that causes us to struggle maybe or relax or question or yell or laugh or cry or throw something. I mean, it's capable of a lot of things, but it's not usually focused on easy directions. It's more like life, day after day of feeling one way and then another, 
discovering this and then that, sickness and health and happiness and despair, love and loss and uncertainty and maybe the occasional fleeting clarity. But if we take a look at his word or at least trust him to know something, Jesus told them this parable so that they might see that it's essential to pray and not lose heart. So what in the parable shows that? That what, help, what might help us see that? Parables are stories that are meant to get to you somehow, to evoke something. So it's usually not like you can figure it out like allegorically or something, like there's some one-to-one -one correspondence from the characters in the parable to actual figures like the judge is God. I mean, I hope not. And the widow represents the vulnerable or the persistent, or, or maybe the judge is us and the widow is God. But yeah, I don't think that's how you figure it out. Like once you figure that out, you understand the whole thing. I don't think that's how it works. I wonder if maybe it works a little more like a dream. I mean, like for interpretive purposes. Like a lot of people say, in a dream, every character is you, or part of you. Maybe it would help to think of it that way. A judge, an unjust judge that doesn't regard humans much, their feelings, or desires, or needs. I think that guy might reside in my consciousness or unconscious or somewhere, some, some voice maybe I picked up in childhood that doesn't have much time for me or human nonsense in general. You want what? Need what? Don't be so sensitive, so needy, grow up. Does Jesus mean to say that God is like this unjust judge? Of course not. In talking about this parable, James Allison says that Jesus knows all of us have an unjust judge well installed into our consciousness. This voice or voices, should we be so old, bold as to want something? We'll quickly send down little messages to us. Shouldn't want that if I were you. Better not want much. You might be disappointed. Or getting above our station, are we? Or as in the famous Oliver Twist scene, more? You want more? And the point of these messages of the judge is to shut down our desire. The unjust judge is internal to each one of us, says Allison, a glowering no in the face of our potential happiness. And I mean, you know, we could think that this judge is necessary if we want to be properly socialized into our culture. But I mean, do you really trust that voice, our culture, to bring into being loving, peaceful, flourishing humans? An unfeeling judge who longs to curb all our enthusiasm? He's so judgy all up there in my consciousness, finding almost everything, almost everyone lacking, and me above all. That judge, judging does not seem to generate much, much generosity. Like I said, I love 
the widow. She's like some sort of badass activist, social justice warrior who never gives up. Someone I might aspire to be like someday. She threatens the unjust judge. You've probably heard this before, but most translations have the widow seeking justice. Vindicate me against my adversaries. But the Greek behind the English is really vengeance. She wants vengeance. Most translations have the judge saying the widow is wearing him out by bothering him. She pesters him. But the Greek word for what the widow does is actually a boxing term. The judge is worried that the widow is going to punch him in the face. She's angry, and she is threatening to him. So maybe don't think helpless when you think of this widow. She won't sit down or be quiet until she gets what she wants. And she wants vengeance, apparently. Maybe this is, or maybe it could be, a characterization of a person you might aspire to be like. Or maybe it could be that, like the judge, a version of this woman resides in you. A sort of more raw part of you that dares to desire what she desires. Maybe it's a more needy or vulnerable part of you, which doesn't mean a helpless part of you. Traditionally, the widow has become sort of a shorthand for someone helpless, the widow and the orphan. But almost all the actual widows you meet in the Bible are not that at all. Tamar, the first widow in the Bible, tricks her father-in-law into having sex with her because he won't find a husband for her. She is clever and inventive, and she is intent on getting her needs met, whether or not she crosses some pretty significant lines. And then King David and Jesus descend from her. Naomi and Ruth are widows who very resourcefully find a way to take care of themselves. Abigail becomes a widow after she drives her drunkard husband to his death so she can get her heart's desire, the King David. <clears throat> Judith is a wealthy widow who turns the table on an enemy general who plans to seduce her. She waits until he's drunk, and he falls asleep, and then she slices off his head with a sword and ends up saving her people. Widows in the Bible. So it's not surprising, really, that in this parable, we have a widow who is vulnerable in some ways, as we all are in some ways, but who knows what she wants and will not give up until she gets it, even if her method crosses some lines. I'd say she has heart. She has passion. She's alive and intent. So maybe the parable is about how, through becoming insistent desirers like her by praying, we will actually be given heart. If we let the judge silence us, though, silence us, though, we might lose heart. The judge that keeps us from daring to imagine or desiring, keeps us from daring to want more. Whereas the widow, she practices this practices this almost 
crazy, single-minded, system-shattering desire. I think the widow part of us might need to be let out there a little bit more. And to think that is what prayer is about. James Allison led a retreat for House of Mercy a while back. Maybe some of you went on it. And he talked about prayer for us, and it's something I always go back to. He says prayer is something that helps us discover who we are, what we want. Helps us uncover what the judge keeps wanting us to cover up, suppress. Praying is something that changes us. But we aren't very malleable, aren't very changeable, until we can admit who we are and what we want. For example, Allison says that in teaching your kids to pray, it'd probably be a mistake to make them pray for starving children in Pakistan if what they really want to pray for is a new baby kitten. God's not going to be offended by a little kid praying for a new baby kitten. But we might teach them to be afraid to be who they are, to admit what they want, to know and own their desires, if we try to get them to speak only noble desires. Instead, it might be good to help them to be unafraid to be who they are in prayer. Because God can work with that. It's when we don't own or feel like we can admit what we want that our desires tend to control us. I mean, there's probably a good time and a good place to talk to your kids about how God isn't like Santa Claus. But maybe prayer really isn't the time to do that. The widow wants the judge to give her vengeance. That's not actually very much what God longs for us to desire, I don't think. I'm pretty sure. But it's pretty clear in a lot of places that God doesn't want us to exhibit some sort of false piety in prayer either. God knows what we're like, maybe better than we do. And God loves us anyway. Prayer is like practicing putting yourself and the people you love in the hands of God, not the judge, not societal expectations, not the social other. Prayer is spending time in the regard of the most merciful, patient, compassionate, non-arrogant, enduring all things lover of the world. And doing that can change you, help you to relax, help you to not worry or be anxious. It can make you more expansive, more generous, help you desire what God desires, which is broader and deeper, much more, more life-giving, more creative, a justice that is not vengeance, but mercy. It's more, it's better. It's better than we can even imagine. But put your hand, put yourself in the hands of that God and give it a try. Imagine. It seems from this story that God is even open to us pestering, insisting, asking impolitely, bullying practically, doesn't it? I think it would be worthwhile to consider what it's like to put yourself into the hands of God 
a God that's open to that? What's it like to trust a God who is open to that? Who knows us better than we know ourselves and isn't frightened by anything she sees, not death, nor life, nor iPhones, nor principalities, nor powers, whose love bears all things and never ends. been listening to the house of mercy podcast you can experience all this live every sunday check out www.houseofmercy.org for all the details house of mercy is a church in saint paul you should come it's not that bad (laughs) 